Would you take out your Bibles with me and let's open them up to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John in chapter 20. The Gospel of John in chapter 20. I want to read for us beginning in verse 24. We're going to read through verse 31. So John chapter 20 beginning in verse 24. And this is the word of God. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John 20, the risen Lord Jesus appears to His disciples Uh, He shows them His hands and His side, and He gives them their mission, saying, As the Father has sent Me, even so am I sending you. And yet, on this first appearance, we are told that Thomas was not with them. And we're not told why Thomas was not with them. But when the other disciples came to Thomas and told him that they had seen the Lord Jesus Christ, he refused to believe. In fact, he was firm in his unbelief. He said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into his side, I will never believe. And yet, on this day, Thomas was with the disciples when Jesus appeared to them. And Jesus spoke directly to Thomas and invited Thomas to both examine and touch his wounds. Now, we are not told that Thomas actually did this, but this was a watershed moment in Thomas's life. His world was turned upside down. Why? Because he finally understood who this carpenter from Nazareth really was. After all of Jesus' teaching and all of Jesus' miracles, it was in this moment that Thomas seemed to truly come to faith. He cried out, My Lord and my God. I have a question for you. It's raining, isn't it? I have a question for you. What do you think about Thomas' last words there? My Lord and my God. 
Specifically, have you ever come to the point in your life where you can confess that Jesus of Nazareth is God? Can you declare that Jesus is God and that He is your God? There are many who hold Jesus in high esteem, but refuse to acknowledge that He is God Himself. It may surprise you to know that Muslims have a very high view of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Muslims view Jesus as a great prophet, a, a messenger from God. Muslims agree that Jesus worked miracles while he was on the earth. Muslims believe that Jesus ascended into heaven. And many Muslims believe that there is coming a day when Jesus will return. But Muslims are typically vehement about this point. Jesus is not God. Jehovah's Witnesses hold Christ in high esteem. They believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He taught God's truth, that that Jesus performed miraculous deeds. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Christ died to redeem sinners. They believe that salvation is through Jesus Christ. But on this point, Jehovah's Witnesses are very clear. Jesus is not God. In their view, Jesus was the first being ever created by God. Jesus is a God with a lowercase g, but He's not the God. He's not Jehovah. What about Mormons? Well, they also hold Christ in high esteem. In fact, Mormons will even call Jesus God. However, the Jesus they worship was created by Jehovah. The Jesus they worship is a brother to Satan. They believe that Jesus was once a man like you and I, but that he became equal with God by his holy living and that God gave him the right to colonize planet Earth, and that if we follow Christ, we too can become equal with Him and equal with God and one day colonize our own planets. And so you see, while Mormons call Jesus God, they mean something very different than we do. They do not mean that He is eternal from eternity past. They do not believe that Jesus is the creator of all that is. And they certainly do not believe that He is the God, Jehovah, the one who has always been and is over all things. The Bible very clearly teaches the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. In eight New Testament passages, the Greek word for God, theos, is applied to Jesus. One example is 1 John 5.20. Just listen to this verse. See if this is not clear. 1 John 5.20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He, Jesus Christ, is the true God and eternal life. In unmistakable terms, John calls Jesus the true God. Another evidence of Jesus' deity is this title that is used of Him often in the New Testament. This title, Son of God. We see it here in verses 30 
and 31. We're told that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Jesus is several times called the Son of God in the New Testament. For example, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mock Jesus, saying, He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Matthew 27, 43. Or when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the water and watched as Jesus enabled Peter to do the same, we're told that they worshiped Jesus and said, Truly you are the Son of God. Matthew 14, 33. The demons knew Jesus' true identity. They said, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Matthew 8.29 In fact, Mark 3.11 says, Whenever the unclean spirit saw Him, they fell down before Him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And when Jesus asked the disciples who they thought He was, It was Peter who said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is the reason that Jesus was crucified. It was this claim. In Luke twenty-two seventy, Jesus is before the Jewish council. He's on trial. And we read that this took place with Jesus on trial. They said to him, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Now what I want to do is take just a few minutes and think about what it means that Jesus is the Son of God as we go and prepare ourselves to take the Lord's Supper. Now I want to suggest that this title, the Son of God, implies three things. First, that Jesus is like His Father, since all sons share a likeness with their Father. Second, that Jesus is different from His Father, since He's the Son and not the Father. And third, that Jesus has a relationship with His Father which is why he is described as the Son. So first, this title Son of God implies that Jesus is like his Father because that's how it works with fathers and sons. They are alike. Children share the nature of their parents. And thus, implied in this title, Son of God, is the implication that Jesus shares the very nature of God Himself. Jesus is God. Indeed, He is fully God. In the Old Testament, as well as the New, the Father is described as being God, the only God, the all-powerful God, the Creator God, the eternal God. We're told that His ways are higher than our ways, His thoughts higher than our thoughts. Yet in the New Testament, we read this astounding verse, Colossians 2.9, about the Lord Jesus Christ. In Him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. 
Here is a profound mystery taught by the New Testament. Both the Father and the Son are equally and fully God. In fact, the Father and the Son share the same divine nature. And they do not share it so that the Father is half God and Jesus is half of God. And of course, the Spirit is there too. And we're told that the Spirit is also fully God Himself. So some think we should picture God as as being split into three parts, as if the Father is one-third of God, and the Son is one-third of God, and the Spirit is one-third of God. But that's not the way the Bible talks. The teaching of Scripture is that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all three distinct persons of whom each is fully and completely God. Now that's mysterious. That's, that's hard. It's, it's harder than uh, the hardest Sudoku puzzle you've ever tried, right? To, to try and fit this together in your mind and make it make sense. Not only is God's thoughts higher than our thoughts, but God's very nature is beyond our very grasp to comprehend. Nevertheless, even if we can't comprehend it, the teaching of the Bible on this issue is very clear. Jesus is the fullness of God Himself. Let me show you three other lines of evidence for this. These are three ways in which Jesus is like His Father. Three ways in which Jesus is like His Father. First, both Jesus and His Father share the divine name. They share the divine name. In past centuries, the name of God was pronounced as Jehovah, and still often is. Uh, In more recent times, scholars have tended to pronounce it as Yahweh. The name of God revealed to Moses, the name by which he is truly named, literally means, I am who I am. I am what I am. In the English Old Testaments that we use, it's translated as Lord with the all capital letters, right? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in your Old Testament. It's the name of God. So look with me at a very uh, famous passage of Scripture. Go to Deuteronomy 6 real quick. Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 and 5. And here's what we read. And what I want you to notice is every time you see the all caps word Lord, you're not reading a title. You're not reading a a, a description of God. You're reading the actual name of God, Yahweh, Jehovah, which means I am who I am. So beginning in verse 4, Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So we could read that passage this way. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one. And you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Or we could use the name Jehovah instead. Either way, it's the same name. I am who I am. Lord willing, when we get to the book of Exodus, we'll probably spend an entire message just unpacking that name of God. But here's the interesting thing for us this morning. In the New Testament, Old Testament verses that use the divine name of God are used to refer to Jesus Himself. 
A great example is Romans 10.13. There Paul is citing Joel 2.32. Joel 2.32 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, everyone who calls on the name of Jehovah, everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh, everyone who calls on the name of I am who I am, will be saved. And in Romans 10, Paul quotes that verse and clearly makes it refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says that to call on the name of Jesus is to call on the name of Jehovah. Here's the stunning implication. The God of the Old Testament, the God of Adam and Noah and Abraham and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and Samuel and David and Elijah and Isaiah and Daniel Daniel and Nehemiah, this God called Yahweh is this carpenter from Nazareth. This man who lived on this world, who breathed and ate and lived like you and me in many physical respects, is God Himself. They share the same name. Number two, both the Father and the Son have the same divine attributes. Both the Father and the Son have the same divine attributes. Let me just give you some examples. God the Father has always existed. But what about Jesus? The Scriptures teach us that Jesus has always existed. He was not created by God. He is the image of God proceeding forth from God like your image does when you look in a mirror. Jesus is the begotten Son in the sense that He springs forth from God as God's image. He emanates forth from God. But as long as there has been God... There has been His image, the Lord Jesus Christ. And thus Jesus can say, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. Revelation 21.6 I happen to think one of the clearest texts that proves that Jesus has always existed is one we use at Christmas time. Isaiah 9, verse 6. You know this verse. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The Son is distinct from the Father, but in a very real way, Jesus is a Father to his people. And that passage in Isaiah, we are told, applies to the Lord Jesus, that He is an everlasting Father. And that Hebrew word for everlasting does not simply mean reaching into eternity future. But it also refers to reaching all the way into eternity past. There has never been a time when the Lord Jesus did not exist. The other attributes of the Father also belong to the Son Jesus is omnipresent. He's able to tell all His people, I am with you wherever you go. Jesus is all-knowing. He is the one who searches mind and heart. Revelation 22-23. Jesus is all-powerful. He's called the Almighty in Revelation 1-8. Jesus is unchangeable. Hebrews 1 says, you are the same. Your years have no end. Hebrews 13 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Every attribute you can think of to describe the Father also describes the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this makes sense. 
when you look into a mirror, your image is a perfect reflection of you. It would be strange for you to look into a mirror and for there to be something different in that image of you than, than there is of you. You're, you're not going to see a, a something on your face in the image that's, that's not on your face in real life. Well, in the same way, Jesus is the perfect image of the Father. Every attribute of the Father also describes the Son. And so Jesus is like his Father, both in the same divine name, the same divine attributes, but one more, both the Father and the Son are the same in that they have created, ruled over, and will judge the universe. When we talk about the mighty acts of God, creation, right? The works of providence, the work of bringing history to its end. All of these are ascribed to the Father. The Father creates, the Father rules over, the Father will judge. But the Bible also ascribes each and every one of those things to the Son, Jesus Christ. So who created the world? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But how did God create the world? Through his word. He spoke and there was light. And John 1.1 says that Jesus is that word of God through which all was created. Colossians 1 says, For by him, Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Both the Father and the Son create. Also, both the Father and the Son rule over the world. That's the meaning of the word Lord, right? It means ruler over all. And that's a title given both to the Father and to the Son. What about the day of judgment? On the day that you stand for judgment, who is going to judge you? Will it be the Father? Will it be the Son? Well, in Romans 14.10, Paul says this, We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And there he's talking about the Father. We will all stand before God the Father. But then, the same man, the Apostle Paul, says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. All right, wait a minute, Paul, which one is it? Are we going to stand before the Father or are we going to stand before the Son? Or are there two different judgment seats? No. We will stand before the Father in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Father has given all authority to Jesus, even the authority to judge. So everything that the Father does in the world, He does through His Son Jesus. They are the same in all of their acts. And this is why Jesus could say in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. So Jesus is fully God. But now, as the Son of God, there must be some distinction. Because we don't call Jesus the Father, and we don't call the Father the Son. So there has to be some differences. What's different between Jesus and the Father? Well, let me mention three ways in which they're different. First, as we've already seen, Jesus is begotten. The Father is the begetter. So many of you learned John 3.16, The way I learned John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that means that Jesus is the image of God emanating forth from God. That Jesus originates in the Father and comes from the Father. So here's one way in which the Father and Son are different. 
The Father does not need the Son to exist. But if there was no Father, there would be no Jesus. You can't have the image without the original. A second difference is that Jesus is a different person from the Father with his own distinct role. Right? Jesus, though equally God, though fully God, is distinct, is a distinct person from the Father. This is the way the Trinity works. There is one God in three persons. Each person is fully God, but each person has his own distinct role to play. And so, for example, it was Jesus, not the Father, who took on flesh and dwelt among us. God the Father is not a human being. And the Holy Spirit is not a human being. But Jesus, who in eternity past was a spirit like the Father, like the Spirit of God, like the Holy Spirit. Jesus also was at one time a spirit without human flesh. But Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, came and put on human flesh. When we look to the Scriptures, we see these three distinct roles for Father, Son, and Spirit. That the Father is the, the architect, the designer, the planner, the scripter of all human history. He's the author, the designer of redemption. The role of the Son is that of accomplishing the purposes of the Father. Jesus is the agent through whom the Father accomplishes all that He has purposed. We mentioned a while ago it was through Jesus that God created the world. It's through Jesus that God rules the world. It's through Jesus that God will judge the world. God so loves His Son that He has chosen to make His Son the center of all things so that all things are from Christ, all things are through Christ, and all things are for Christ. Now, there is another distinction that is clear from this title, Son of God. And that is, though Jesus is equal with His Father in nature, He is subordinate to His Father in their relationship. As a fellow human being, me and my son Jonathan are equal in dignity, equal in nature. But in our relationship, I am the Father and He is the Son. And even when I'm a, 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 an old man at 82 and He's 60, there's still a kind of respect that He will owe to me just as I owe to my Father and you owe to your parents. right? So it is with the Father and the Son. Though they are the same in essence and though they are of the same divine nature, they are not equal in their relationship and that Christ is subordinate to the Father. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, The head of Christ is God. And Jesus is Lord over everything except for one. Jesus is not Lord over His Father. And so in 1 Corinthians 15.27, Paul says about Jesus, when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. In other words, when God the Father put everything under the authority of Jesus Christ, there was one thing excluded. Namely, the Father Himself is not under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. So three ways in which the Father and Son are the same, and then there's three ways that they are distinct. Let's now talk about the fact that this title, the Son of God, refers to the relationship that the Father and the Son have. This relationship is characterized by two aspects, submission and love. You see, not only is Jesus subordinate to his Father by virtue of being the Son of God, but Jesus is willingly submissive to his Father. 
Jesus does not rebel against his sonship. He has eagerly embraced his sonship. He has voluntarily submitted himself to his Father for all eternity. So listen to Jesus talk about this in John 8, 28 and 29. He says, I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father has taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. What does Jesus say he always does? The things that are pleasing to his Father. John 6, 38, Jesus says, I have come down from heaven. Why? Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. It was in obedience to the Father that Jesus took on human form. Not just for 33 years, but for all eternity future, Jesus is now a human being like us. In obedience to the Father, Jesus chose on earth not to exercise his omniscience and his divine attributes. But Jesus submitted himself to being led by the Holy Spirit of God. This is why when Jesus was on earth, he sometimes didn't know things like the date of his, of his second coming. Why we're told that Jesus could grow in knowledge, that he could grow in wisdom. It wasn't that Jesus had ceased being God, but out of submission to his Father, He denied himself access to these divine powers and took on the fullness of human experience. All of the miraculous things that Jesus did, he did through his voluntary submission to the Spirit of God, being led by the Spirit of God, being filled with the Spirit of God, enabled by the Spirit of God to do the will of his Father. In obedience to his Father, Jesus even humbled himself to the point of death. The humble painful, humiliating death of a cross. Yes, Jesus was moved by love for you and me to give his life on the cross. But what was it about you and me that moved Jesus to love us? Why did Jesus love us so much that he would die for us? Was it because we were so morally attractive? Is it because we're so good in ourselves that we're worthy of that love? Absolutely not. The Bible says again and again that we are great sinners. No, Jesus loved us so much that he would die for us because it was his delight to love those whom the Father had chosen to give to him as a bride. Remember the baseball illustration. We used to use this a lot around here, that that, uh, a baseball from Walmart, right? I don't know how much a baseball from Walmart is, but it can't be much, right? Like maybe $8 for a a baseball from Walmart, and it's it's not worth a whole lot. But you go and you get Derek Jeter to write his name on that baseball, and what happens to the value of that baseball? Suddenly it, it shoots up. Well, as sinners, we are not worthy of Christ's love. But from the foundations of the earth, God set his love on us. He called us his own. He chose to save us and had this plan to make us holy, to make us a part of the bride of Christ. And it was because God put his signature on us that he set his love on us that Jesus, out of love for his Father, loves us. It is the Father's purpose. It is the Father's plan that moves Christ to love us. It is Christ's love for His Father's glory that is at the basis of Christ's great love for you and for me. So that ultimately when Christ went to the cross, He did so out of submission 
to his Father as the Son of God. Jesus' submission did not end there. For though now God has lifted him up and given him all authority over all things, and Jesus is now the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and yet 1 Corinthians 15 speaks of a day when Christ will perform yet another grand act of submission to his Father. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that when the kingdom of God is complete, that when the judgment day has passed, that when we as Christ's people are living with him in the new heavens and the new earth, Jesus will himself present himself and the entire kingdom, including every believer, to God the Father to be his, that he may be all and in all. Now, this great love that Jesus has for his Father is just a reflection of the Father's love for the Son. How many times does the Father call Christ His beloved Son? Both Father and Son are holy, meaning they love what is good with an infinite love. And since both the Father and the Son are infinitely good, they are infinitely lovely in one another's sight. And so the Father and the Son love each other with an infinite, delightful love. In John 17, Jesus speaks of this great love that he had with his Father before the foundations of the world. And friends, everything that has ever happened in human history and ever will happen in human history has taken place for this one purpose, that the Father might express his great love for the Son and that the Son might express his great love for the Father. So this is all what we mean when we talk about Christ as the Son of God. Jesus, as the Son of God, shares in the divine nature of His Father. Jesus, as the Son of God, is a distinct person from His Father. And Jesus, as the Son of God, has a wonderful relationship of submission and love to His Father. So what? So what? What do we take away from glorious truths like these. Well, first, as Christians, we should stand amazed at the love that we've been brought into. The love that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father is the most intense, passionate, thrilling love in all the universe. And if you've been united with Christ, you've now been brought into that same love. Christian, Do you understand how much the Father and the Son love you? Can I just answer that for you? You don't. You don't. You don't grasp it. But boy, I wish we could. Right? You live. Though you maybe can't see it, though maybe sometimes it doesn't feel like it. You are in the midst of an amazing love. You live in an ocean of love that you are drowning in. And it is a glorious, glorious thing Surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. Yes, everything is working for your good. Heaven awaits you. You live in a grand and glorious love. The foundation of it is the Father and the Son's love for one another. You have been brought in by faith in Jesus Christ. And then second, recognize that true love for God will express itself the same way Christ expresses His love for the Father in happy, submissive obedience. How does Christ love his father? By coming and saying, it's my pleasure to do all that my father has called me to do. 
How do we show our love to Jesus? How do we show our love to the Father? By saying it is our pleasure to do all that the Father and Son teach us to do in His Word. Sometimes obeying God is difficult. Sometimes obeying God is very sweet. We're getting ready to obey God in a very precious and sweet way. Because one of the things that our Savior has commanded us to do, as often as we'll do it, is to come together and to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And in these moments, what we're doing is we're remembering the sacrifice of Christ for our salvation. When we take the bread and we take the cup, we're preaching to our souls and we're preaching to one another and we're giving a public profession of faith before God and everyone who will see, my hope is Christ, the one who broke his body for me, the one who spilt his blood for me. That is my hope. I rest in him. So we're going to take a moment. We're going to pray and prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper and then we're going to celebrate that together. Let's pray.